Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. This episode is a very interesting episode because I have with Mark Lanford. Mark is a partner at Sherman and Sterling in New York. He is a former assistant chief litigation counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we take a deep dive into the change in FCPA corporate enforcement policy around mergers and acquisitions going forward. There is now a safe harbor for M&A if you follow certain guidelines laid out in this new corporate policy that's been incorporated into what used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual and is now called the Justice Manual. I know you will find it extremely useful and enlightening. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now C-Suite Radio Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And you're in for a treat today because I have Mark Lanfer. Mark is a partner at Sherman and Sterling in the white collar and regulatory enforcement practice. And we are going to take a deep dive into the announcement made by the Department of Justice last summer around mergers and acquisitions and how that became a part of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So, Mark, first of all, uh, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you for having me, Tom. So, Mark, this is something that I think um, really, uh, if it hasn't already, will impact companies in the FCPA space. Um, But I was wondering if you just might give us your thoughts on what the, you thought the announcement's impact was and really how that impact will uh, move forward. Sure, sure. I think the announcement is, is, I would say, part of an evolution where the DOJ and the SEC have really been trying to push for greater transparency and greater predictability in the FCPA space to to encourage companies to cooperate and voluntarily self-disclose any conduct they may find. And so one of the somewhat open questions for several years has been, what happens in the M&A space? What happens when a company acquires another company and then discovers that the, the target company had a historic FCA, FCPA problem. Obviously, that successor company now owns the problem to some extent, but the question became, what should that the acquirer do about it? How much cooperation credit could they, they expect to get? What kind of reception could they expect to get from the prosecutors if they disclosed? And so... What the DOJ is trying to do now, starting last summer and now now codified in their enforcement policy, is encourage cooperation and encourage companies in that merger context to, to have some assurance that they will be treated, quote-unquote, fairly 
if they come forward with any any problems they identify. Mark, you mentioned that you saw this as an evolution in the Department of Justice thinking. Uh, going back to the last decade, the first decade of this century, we saw multiple cases involving uh, of FCPA enforcement involving mergers and acquisitions. But in the 2012 FCPA guidance, we saw the Department of Justice articulate at least a strategy that would help a company reduce, if not eviscerate, their overall liability uh, through a safe harbor of both pre-acquisition due diligence steps and post-acquisition steps they could take. Do you see or did you see this uh, announcement by Matthew Miner and the Department of Justice as really a evolution in that thinking further or was it in another direction? No, I think you're right. I think it is in the same direction. I think, I think with the guidance from 2012, the challenge is it might have been an implicit safe harbor, but it was not an explicit one. Instead, in the in the section on mergers and acquisitions, the SEC and DOJ talked about two polar extremes. One, a company that engaged in thorough due diligence and voluntarily self-disclosed after the fact that that, that type of company might be entitled to a declination, and they cited a case where, where they had done that. But then they had the other extreme where an acquiring company was still subject to uh, sanction after the fact. And so I think that that guidance signaled the direction the SEC and DOJ were likely to go in, but it did not provide a tremendous amount of comfort or clarity to companies in the M&A space. Instead, it, it could really be seen as highlighting that there was risk in the M&A, M&A space which, while long understood and long known, seeing it as a reminder, I think, uh, was really cold comfort to a lot of companies. And so with, with the announcement from Matthew Miner, I think what you're seeing is really clarification of what the SEC and DOJ were trying to say five or seven years ago. Mark, you are uh, really on the front lines of either defending companies or representing them in uh, matters uh, such as the FCPA and certainly other regulatory uh, and enforcement matters. Is this certainty and clarification that you've talked about something that uh, you have found resonates with your clients when you have these discussions? Yes and no. I think I have found that the that the goals the DOJ and SEC are espousing certainly resonates and and is welcome by our our clients. Um, Having something in writing like the corporate enforcement policy is undoubtedly helpful. It provides sort of a a touchstone that clients can rely on and, and point to and say, if we do these things, we have some basis to expect the following outcome. The challenge is, Even as clarified, the guidance does not provide true certainty because there's a lot of adjectives. It requires timely and thorough due diligence. And the question will naturally arise, what does that mean? And in hindsight, will the due diligence be questioned? And it requires a robust uh, compliance policy. Again, what does robust mean in this context? So while I think the direction of these policy changes is absolutely comforting. 
the reality is that when you get into any individual case, it is still very difficult to have true certainty as to what will happen when when push comes to shove. So uh, in terms of uh, going forward, has it changed uh, the advice that you would give a, a client in terms of the steps they would take either in the pre-acquisition phase or in the post-acquisition phase? Or would you um, try to uh, convey the, that, that last word you used, the robust or robustness of the entire process? Yeah, I, I think it hasn't, it hasn't yet changed in a meaningful way the advice we we are giving and in part that's because from for the most part our clients have already wanted to take as thorough an approach toward due diligence and, and bring as robust a compliance program as they could so i don't think the advice has really changed but i think that the weight behind it may be changing slightly because, again, we can now point to something concrete that clients can lean on and rely on and say, you know what, if we expand our our compliance program to these high-risk regions promptly upon acquisition, we really should get credit for that. And so there's, there's added reason to move quickly, to integrate companies into one global compliance program and to to push back against any individual um, units of a given company trying to have separate operations by region or separate compliance programs by region. Mark, you talked about uh, the evolution in the department's thinking, and certainly uh, from the time of the 2012 guidance up to the 2017 announcement of the corporate enforcement policy, we saw an evolution there. Uh, in addition to the speech by Matthew Miner last July announcing this M&A policy, what other uh, uh, evolutions have you seen or uh, been uh, uh, the Department of Justice put forward in the corporate enforcement policy? Well, I think one big one that, that springs to mind is is their their change or their clarification in their policy on monitors from last fall. Obviously, they've they've tried to to clarify that monitors should not be a default, which you know they were starting to seem like it in in some cases. But the department has clarified that no, a monitor is supposed to be prospective. And so if a company has remediated and can't demonstrate that their compliance program has addressed the issues that gave rise to the, the original FCPA violation, DOJ should presumptively not be imposing a monitor. And so that's a big change. And I think it's, again, one that that is trying to encourage uh, companies to have confidence that in implementing a robust compliance program will be rewarded. Because at times, I think companies started to question, what benefit are we really getting from this if the Government's just going to impose a monitor in any event, impose massive fines in any event. Where do we see the credit for our effort? And I think the DOJ is is trying to emphasize and clarify for companies that they really will provide that benefit. 
So, Mark, I have never uh, been a prosecutor. I've always practiced on the civil side of things. But in in focusing on the FCPA, certainly over the past uh, five years, but even further back, I see the, both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, evolving, but evolving in a way uh, based upon comments of people, comments of people like yourself in the defense bar, comments of people like myself, perhaps one of the commentary at. Uh, but I see the department, both the department and the SEC responding in various ways. Would you find that to be a fair assessment or is something else going on? I think that's fair. And I think part of what drives that is that the government, both the SEC and the DOJ, recognize that they have very limited resources. Um, they have tremendous leverage, but they have limited resources. So they can't investigate every issue. And that is especially true in the FCPA context, where cases almost invariably involve substantial foreign witnesses, documents, etc. And so they rely on the defense bar. They rely on company counsel to work with them as adversaries in certain circumstances, but also, in a sense, as partners, improving compliance overall. And so I think that that sort of quasi-partnership has led them to really take to heart a lot of the comments from the defense bar and, and the compliance community, because they realize that, in some respect, everyone is on the same side of trying to do things better, trying to create a compliant environment. Um, and, and whether that's going to be done by prosecutors or defense counsel, in the end, it's all to the good. So we uh, believe we've had the uh, retirement of Rod Rosenstein from the Department of Justice. And it seemed to me that if he didn't lead some of these efforts, he was certainly a part of these, announcing them um, as well. Uh, would it be... Uh, do you think that we may see continued evolution for both the department and the Securities and Exchange Commission in this area? I, I think so. I don't think this has been driven so much by individual personalities, so much as it has been driven by broad market-wide recognition and, and you know recognition of the line prosecutors, again, that they have limited resources. They're trying to get fair, consistent results and encourage as much cooperation and voluntary disclosure as they can. I think the challenge you'll see is that there is ultimately a limit to how much clarity and predictability the DOJ can provide in an SCPA case. Because it's not like antitrust cases where you know, in the cartel context, you're always going to have multiple actors. And so you can provide absolute certainty through the leniency program to somebody who reports first in. You can't do that in the same way in the FCPA context. Um, and the, the measurement of damages and, and disgorgement is very different in the FCPA context. So I think there will be a limit to how much evolution there will be or can be. But I think directionally, I expect to see the guidance and the, and the shifting continue in the same direction. 
So, Mark, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but this has just been, uh, at least for me, a fascinating exploration of not only the uh, changes around mergers and acquisitions in FCPA enforcement, but really a discussion about the evolution in the department's thinking and in the corporate enforcement policy, uh, even going forward. So uh, I want to do uh, thank you very much. And frankly, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. All right. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The topic of mergers and acquisitions and their safe harbor under FCPA enforcement is certainly one that every compliance practitioner needs to be familiar with. I hope you'll join me again next week where we take up another episode on the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a part of C-Suite Radio Network as well. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.